Hello, and welcome to our first serious episode of World History with Professor Roll. Now, I'm your host, Dr. Daryl J. Roll, former trash man, lumberjack, and IT consultant, but now a professor of history, archaeology, and digital humanities at Calvin University. Thank you for listening or watching, if you're watching this on YouTube. I hope that you're doing well and that you'll enjoy today's episode. I hope that you'll learn something new and be challenged to think more deeply or perhaps just a little bit differently than you have before. Now, if you're a student listening or watching this for one of my courses at Calvin, please be sure that you've also accessed the course introduction session and the syllabus because these lay out all of the really important information about how the course is going to run and all that jazz. Now in this episode, we're going to focus in on just exactly what the term history means. And I want us to think about a few key things. First, let's define and distinguish some of our key terminology. Notably that word history and the term the past. What do these terms mean? How are they different? And how do they relate to one another? And because I happen to actually be an archaeologist first and foremost, we're also going to briefly consider how the word archaeology relates to both history and the past. Secondly, we're going to think about some of the reasons why history is worth studying, with special attention to a couple of Why Study History essays that are available on the American Historical Association website. And finally, we're going to outline a series of important historical thinking or historical reading skills, drawing upon the handy historical thinking chart that's been produced by the Stanford History Education Group. Now, if you're watching this in video format, links to all of the resources that we talk about are going to be provided right on the video screen, while audio or podcast listeners, you'll be able to find the links within the episode description. So let's get started with some of those definitions. Just what is history? Well, let's see what Google has to say. If I type in, what is history? I get a dictionary definition that looks like a pretty good start. According to this, history is a noun, and it has three key definitions. Definition number one is, quote, the study of past events, particularly in human affairs, or the past considered as a whole, end quote. Now, synonyms or other words that mean pretty much the same thing are offered, such as the past, former times, historical events, days of old, the old days, and the good old days. While the only antonym or or a word that means the opposite of history is given as the future. Now definition number two seems to be a little more narrow. And this calls history, quote, the whole series of past events connected with someone or something, end quote seeming to indicate that one person's or one thing's history might be different from that of another person or thing. Now, definition number three seems to be the narrowest of all. And according to this definition, history is, quote, a continuous, typically chronological record of an important or public events 
or of a particular trend or institution, end quote. And the example that they give here in a sentence is a history of the labor movement, for example, along with synonyms such as chronicle, archive, record, report, and so on. Now, these are pretty good definitions, but I think there are some problems with them. And I think these problems reflect a general confusion that I'd really like to clear up. Definition one, for example, starts out just fine. History is, according to this definition, the study of past events, particularly in human affairs. But I think this definition goes entirely wrong when it adds that history is the past considered as a whole. And then it proceeds to add in all of those supposed synonyms or same meaning words. This definition for me, sadly, conflates the word history with the concept of the past. And this is probably because most people make the same mistake. It's a very common mistake that people make. And what I'd like to do in this uh, episode is to begin emphasizing that despite the common misuse of the word history, the word history does not refer to the same thing as the past. Yesterday, for example, is not history. And neither is the Battle of Gettysburg, the assassination of Julius Caesar, or the invention of the wheel. Events are not history, nor are former times. These are more properly part of what we should call the past. So the past then needs to be understood in terms of time. And the simplest way of thinking about time is to divide it into three units. We have the past, the present, and the future. Now time is an extremely complicated concept that philosophers and physicists have still not come to fully understand or to agree upon. And without diving into these complexities, I'd argue that as human beings, we can only experience one of these three units of time. And that is the present, from which we as people tend to measure time. Now the future, this is all the time, the events, and the possibilities that have not yet happened, but that lie before us. Let's think about a particular moment in the future. Say, tomorrow morning, when you're brushing your teeth. We can imagine that moment, but when it comes, we will not experience it as the future, but as the new present. Time progresses in iterations, not from the present to the future, but from one present to the next new present and from that present on to the next one. Now the past too is measured from the present. That is from this very moment. So in my definition, the past is simply what has existed and or happened before the present. It is the entirety of time before this precise 
moment. And once it happens, the past no longer exists. Despite science fiction movies, we cannot touch or go back to the past, nor sadly the future. Now last week is not history, but it is the past. 1979, the year of my birth and the cinematic release of such films as Apocalypse Now, Alien, Rocky II, Mad Max, and Monty Python's Life of Brian is not ancient history, but the past, and the quite recent past, if I do say so myself. So if the past is not the same thing as history, what exactly is history? Now I think the John Carter Brown Library from Brown University tackled this issue really well in a newsletter article from all the way back in 2005. And here's what they had to say. So I'm going to quote here. The infinite detail and totality of the past can never be reconstructed. The writing of history is a process of highly selected reconstructive reconstruction of features of the past. And confusion occurs sometimes when we use the word history to mean not just historical writing, but also as a synonym for the entirety of past happenings. From the infinite number of past happenings, the trillions and trillions of events occurring daily, only articulation in words, that is, spoken or written human commentary, can create what we call history. Without human utterance, whether on paper or oral, the past is silent and chaotic. If we are mute, the past is mute. The past doesn't itself speak. It must be evoked. And that evocation is inescapably selective in the extreme. No picture speaks for itself, either. Like the past as a whole, it must be commented upon and interpreted in order to become history. End quote. <coughs> so with all of this in mind, I would briefly define history as what has been written, said, and or recorded about the past. History is humanity's documentation of the past. And history can also be understood as the academic subject of studying or writing about the past, with a particular focus on the written or recorded evidence. Now, history is not the only academic subject that focuses on the past. And written records are not the only evidence for the past as well. Physical evidence and material objects also often survive. And that's where the discipline of archaeology comes in. 
Now, archaeology is the study of the human past focused upon the physical and material remains of the past. Now, history and archaeology overlap significantly, and historians are increasingly appreciating the value of non-written evidence, interpreting and reinterpreting written records in the light of archaeological materials. Now, there are still big disciplinary divides, though, with many historians arguing that documentary evidence offers the best insights on the past and that physical materials can only be interpreted in the light of written text. While at the same time there are archaeologists who go so far as to argue that written records are far too biased and that we can and indeed should develop our understandings of the past on the physical evidence alone. Well, I'm an archaeologist and an historian, which means that I disagree with both of those types of historians and archaeologists, and that whenever possible, I try to integrate all of the available evidence to create our understandings of the past. Now, you'll be hearing about both sources of evidence in our future episodes. And if you're a student in one of my courses, we're going to be engaging with both historical and archaeological evidence in our coursework. So, how can we summarize so far? First, the past is a unit of time representing everything that has ever existed or happened up to this very moment. The past itself can never be revisited nor changed. Once it happens, it's gone. Secondly, history is humanity's documentation of the past. It's also an academic subject that focuses on the study and writing of such documentation. And finally, archaeology is the study and writing of the past through a focus on the physical material evidence that remains of the past. Now, importantly, both history and archaeology focus on the past. They just use different types of evidence as their primary means of, of thinking about the past. And I think it's really important that we emphasize that both history and archaeology are based on fragments, only fragmentary pieces of evidence about the actual past. And neither history nor archaeology, despite what some archaeologists and historians might try to say, neither one of them can provide a complete and fully accurate representation of any past, whether that is from thousands of years ago or even yesterday afternoon. Sadly, even when we combine historical and archaeological evidence together, we still never have a full, accurate, and unbiased view of the actual past, as there are always gaps in what remains. Whether these gaps are missing perspectives in the documentary record or missing material evidence, the picture of the past that we have in the present is never fully complete. Now, woo, 
that's been a lot of hefty material and I need a cup of tea. Um, I'm going to go grab one and I'll be right back. If you can, um, I suggest that you two take a short break. Um, so if you want to do that, hit the pause button and I'll be ready when you get back. I feel better now having that uh, that tea. So um, now that we know the distinction between the past, history, and archaeology, why should someone study history? What are some of the core principles of actually doing it? Why study history? Well, people who are far more eloquent than I am have answered this question. And I think it's best to just point you to some of these. 1985, William H. McNeil answered the question, focusing on memory and its crucial importance at the individual, local, national, and global levels. Now, he argues that the study of history is indeed worthwhile and necessary for the education of effective citizens and worthy human beings. I'm quoting him here. He says, historical knowledge is no more and no less um, than carefully and critically constructed collective memory. And as such, it can both make us wiser in our public choices um, and more richly human in our private lives. Now, McNeil continues, quote, Without individual memory, a person literally loses his or her identity and would not know how to act in encounters with others. Now, imagine waking up one morning, unable to tell total strangers from family and friends. Collective memory is similar, though its loss does not immediately paralyze everyday private activity. But ignorance of history, that is, absent or defective collective memory, does deprive us of the best available guide for public action, especially in encounters with outsiders. Whether the outsiders are another nation, another civilization, or some special group within our national borders. Now, this is me talking. Our individual memories are not fixed. Have you ever had a memory change? Think about it for a while. Do you remember ever being disappointed in some event, only to later realize that that disappointment, what actually happened, was actually one of the best things that could have happened? Initially, you were really ticked off about it. You were really frustrated. You were devastated by what happened. But it's only in hindsight, only after other things happen in your experience, that you realize that what you had once thought was the worst thing ever was really like, you know, a divine moment um, when something really happened um, that was for your, for your good. 
Or have you ever been dead certain that a personal relationship was the one only to find out later that you were dead wrong? Now time, circumstances, and the accumulating effect of new memories and experiences can often change our individual memories. Now McNeil goes on to highlight, and again I'm quoting him, that collective memory is quite the same. Historians are always at work reinterpreting the past, asking new questions, searching new sources, and finding new meanings in old documents in order to bring the perspective of new knowledge and experience to bear on the task of understanding the past. This means, of course, that what we know and believe about history is always changing. In other words, our collected, codified memory alters with time, just as personal memories do, and for the same reasons. End quote. And here I think it's really worth quoting McNeil again at length. And to be honest, read this essay. Um, I'll provide a link here um, for you listening to the audio within the um, the audio description. Um, for those of you watching on the video, it's going to be here or or there. I'm not sure which side. Um, so let's let's think about what McNeil's having to say. And here I'm going to do a really long quote. Okay. So quote: When teachers of history admit that their best efforts at understanding the past are only tentative and sure to be altered in time to come. Skeptics are likely to conclude that history has no right to take students' time away from other subjects. If what is taught today is not really true, how can it claim space in a crowded school curriculum? But what if the world is more complicated and diverse than words can ever tell? What if human minds are incapable of finding neat pigeonholes into which everything that happens will fit? What if we have to learn to live with uncertainty and probabilities and act on the basis of the best guesswork we are capable of? Then, surely, the changing perspectives of historical understanding are the very best introduction we can have to the practical problems of real life. Then, surely, a serious effort to understand the interplay of change and continuity in human affairs is the only adequate introduction human beings can have to the confusing flow of events that constitutes the actual adult world. Since that is the way the world is, it follows that study of history is essential for every young person. Systematic sciences are not enough. They discount time and therefore oversimplify reality, especially human reality. Current events are not enough either. Destined to almost instant obsolescence, they foreshorten and thereby distort the time dimension within which human lives unfold and thanks to memory are conducted. 
Memory indeed makes us human. History, our collective memory, carefully codified and critically revised, makes us social, sharing ideas and ideals with others so as to form all sorts of different human groups. Each such group acts as it does largely because of shared ideas and beliefs about the past. And about what the past, as understood and interpreted by the group in question, tells about the present and probable future. End quote. Now, wow. I think that's some pretty powerful stuff. Um, and uh, I urge you to, to read it for yourself. Read it again. And for another perspective, you should also check out Peter Stern's 1998 essay, why study history? And if you're a student in one of my courses, this is almost certainly a signed reading. So be sure that you get the reading done. Now Stearns, in his essay, he approaches the subject by thinking through several aspects of how history is useful. He offers what he calls two fundamental facts that he thinks underlie all arguments for why history is useful. First, he says that history helps us to understand people and societies. And secondly, he says that history helps us to understand change and how the society that we live in came to be. Now Stern echoes McNeil in emphasizing that importance of history for our own lives, and in particular the role that it plays in forming identities. But he also highlights a set of overlapping skills that, that studying history helps students to develop. I'm just going to outline these for you quickly here. The first one is the ability to assess evidence and to make coherent arguments based on a variety of data. The second is the ability to assess conflicting interpretations developing a critical awareness of logic, argument, and the importance of perspective. And the third is experience in assessing past examples of change, which help to develop the critical capacity to think through cause and effect and to understand the complex range of causes that lead to change within societies. Now, all of these, Stearns argues, and I definitely agree, help to create good business people, professionals, and political leaders in the world of work. And he also argues that understanding history and historical methods is valued not only in life, but in many potential careers that may not seem very obvious. So history isn't only valuable for Jeopardy contestants or teachers and professors, and its wide applicability to whatever your career goals might be will hopefully become obvious as we explore history together through these episodes or our course if you're one of my students. So, now that we've spent some time thinking about why history might be important, um, what actually do historians do? 
or we can start by trying to think about some key characteristics of history. And five key points can be summarized as, number one, history is an account of the past. History is an account of the past. Number two, accounts about the past differ depending on somebody's perspective. That is, accounts differ depending on one's perspective. Number three, we rely on evidence in order to construct accounts of the past. That is, accounts of the past are constructed based on evidence. Number four, we must question the reliability of each piece of evidence. So as we're constructing accounts of the past based on evidence, we have to question the reliability of every single piece. And number five, no single piece of evidence is sufficient to build a plausible account of the past. That is, no single piece of evidence is sufficient to build a plausible account of the past. So the historical method then is about exploring the past through accounts. Those are things that people say, things that people have said, things that people have written about the past. It's about analyzing and evaluating those accounts, filtering through poor accounts, or trying to resolve inconsistencies, and creating our own accounts based upon this process. Now, importantly, this is not the rote memorization of dates, names, names of kings, names of places, etc. History is not really about knowing a lot of facts. It's about having the critical awareness to make sense of the supposed facts and to evaluate and form arguments based on the available evidence or the lack thereof. Now, in this respect, history is both easier and harder than you might realize, particularly if you take a history course with me. Yes, there's a certain amount of factual data that I expect you to learn, particularly the relative sequences of events and the particular characteristics of individual world regions and societies. Now, I'm not too concerned with students memorizing lots of specific dates, though. Okay, But while that might be easier than you thought a history course might be, I expect that students are actually going to really engage with the concepts and that you provide strong, detailed, and well-argued, critically aware answers to questions. I'm less concerned with you memorizing and knowing who lived when, when certain events happen, is that you can actually tell me why those events matter. What those people did that affect our present today or shaped the world. So it's less about memorizing specific details and more about understanding why the details matter in the big picture over the long term.
Now, to help you out with thinking about how to think like a historian, I provided a copy of the Stanford History Education Group's historical thinking chart. Now, this is a one-page document that breaks historical thinking into four key elements that it calls historical reading skills. And these are sourcing, contextualization, corroboration, and then close reading. I want to go over these very briefly before we end. Now, for sourcing, good historians will ask themselves questions like, who wrote this document? What is the author's perspective? Why was this document written? When was this document written? Where was the document written? And is the document reliable? Why or why not? For contextualization, good historians will ask questions like, when and where was the document created? And as you can see, there's some overlap between all of these categories, okay? These are, um, you know, contextualization, corroboration, close reading, sourcing. Um, they're not hard and fast categories. In fact, they bleed into one another and really depend upon one another. But for contextualization, again, good historians ask the question, when and where was the document created? What was different about that context, the context in which this document was created, that might be important to understanding the document? What aspects about that context are similar to today that help us to understand that document better? And how might the particular circumstances in which this document was created affect its content? How does the context shape what the document says. Now for corrob corroboration, good historians are going to ask questions like, what do other documents say about the subject? Does this document agree with other documents? Why or why not? What are other possible documents or sources that might relate to this subject? And Of the different sources about this subject, which are the most reliable and why? And for close reading, <coughs> and for close reading, good historians will really dive into the specific details of the documents in search of clues, asking questions like, what claims does the author make in this document? What evidence does the document offer to support those claims? What words, phrases, images, or symbols does the author use in order to persuade his or her audience? And how does the document's language indicate the author's particular perspective? The key here in close reading is about paying attention to the details and realizing that details are really crucial to interpreting what the document overall is trying to say. Now, this isn't easy or straightforward. 
And historical thinking never really relies on just one document or source. Now, we don't just accept the claims of any document at face value, but we ask all of these probing questions in order to offer the best and most critically aware evaluation. So, to just recap from this entire episode, we're almost done here. History and the past are not the same thing. The past relates to time and it represents all things and all events that have ever existed or happened before this very moment. While history is humanity's partial and incomplete documentation of some of the past. Now, studying history is important at the individual, local community, national, and global levels as a form of individual and collective memory with great value that extends into all all aspects of life and really with relevance for nearly all career fields. Finally, historical thinking is not about memorization of dates and names, but it's about a detailed and thorough critical evaluation of sources about the past in order to sift, weigh, and create our own accounts that are based upon the best possible evidence. So that's all we have time for today. Um, Thanks so much for watching and or listening. Tune in next time um, for our next episode where we'll be looking at human prehistory with a special emphasis on the importance of the Neolithic Revolution. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.